Good morning. Putin says he's not planning to use nukes, but Ukraine might. The world is closer to Armageddon. Supporters of long-term marijuana federal prisoners demand freedom from President Biden. The news goes to Washington. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Friday morning, October 28, 2022. And Twitter has fallen into the hands of Elon Musk, who changed his handle on the social media giant to Chief Twit. Shortly after seizing control, Musk fired the CEO, chief financial officer, and the company's top lawyer. The deal is valued at $44 billion, and it's not clear if all the paperwork for the deal has been finalized. A few hours after Musk took control, he tweeted, The bird has been freed, a reference to Twitter's logo. Musk, who is CEO of the electric car maker Tesla, wrote a message claiming the reason he acquired Twitter was to create a digital town square where a wide range of beliefs can be shared without violence. The Washington Post reported last week Musk plans to fire two-thirds of the company's 7,500 employees. And a group of progressive Democrats in Congress said Tuesday it had retracted a letter to the White House urging President Joe Biden to engage in direct diplomatic talks with Russia. The letter triggered an uproar among Democrats raising questions about the strength of the party's support for Ukraine. In a statement, Representative Pramila Jayapal, the chair of the Progressive Caucus, said the caucus was withdrawing the letter it sent less than 24 hours prior. It was signed by 30 members of the party's liberal flank. Last month, lawmakers approved about $12.3 billion in Ukraine-related aid as part of a bill that finances the federal government through December 16th. The money included aid for the Ukrainian military as well as money to help the country's government provide basic services to its citizens. That comes on top of more than $50 billion provided in two previous bills. And addressing the annual meeting of the Valdai Discussion Group, Russian President Vladimir Putin said on Thursday, the world is entering a decade of tumult as the pursuit of a more just world order clashes with the arbitrary hegemony of the collective West. Putin said while U.S. hegemony is fading, Russia is not looking for domination, but he says the conflict with the West has made this the most consequential and dangerous decade since World War II. Putin went on to accuse Ukraine of plotting to use a radiological weapon known as a dirty bomb in the uh, war with Russia. But Putin insisted Russia has no plans to introduce nuclear weapons of its own. We have uh, published the intelligence data for a reason about an incident with a dirty bomb being prepared. We know where it is done, more or less. There is still some nuclear fuel that has been repurposed. The technologies that the Ukraine has allow them to do that. They've loaded up to Tochka-U missile, or they could uh, blow up and say that Russia did that, that Russia has um, conducted a nuclear strike. But it doesn't make sense for us to do it, neither politically nor military. Meanwhile, The Guardian reports about a 1,000 bodies, including civilians and children, were recently exhumed near Kharkiv, including 447 bodies at a mass burial site in Izium an area until recently under Russian control. In related news, Thursday marks the 60th anniversary of the day a Soviet naval officer riding along in a nuclear submarine single-handedly saved the world from nuclear annihilation. It happened off the coast of Cuba as the U.S. Navy attacked the nuclear-armed submarine with depth charges. The co-founder of the Hiroshima-Nagasaki Peace Committee in Washington, D.C. is John Steinbach. He describes what happened next. Vasily Arkhipov was flotilla commander for the Soviet submarines off the coast of Cuba back in 62. And he was on a Soviet submarine called B-59. 
And uh, the U.S. Navy was attacking the B-59 with depth charges. But the, the intention was, and this is going back to World War II, what they were actually trying to do was use depth charges to signal the submarine to come to the surface. They weren't actually trying to destroy the submarine. But the commander and the first officer on the submarine thought that they were under attack. And in fact, some of the depth charges were causing big problems. The ventilation had been knocked out. The temperature was rising. The CO2 levels were rising. The Soviet nuclear doctrine called for when you are under attack in a submarine and you've lost contact with communications with the surface, then you are to assume that World War III has begun. The standing order was that the uh, nuclear torpedoes should be fired at the U.S. fleet. But fortunately, Vasily Arkhipov was the Potella commander. He was on there, and so he had a third vote. And he understood what was going on, and he was his decision not to fire basically prevented World War III from happening back in 1962. And since then, there have been three or four other very, very close calls, including in 1983 during the Able Archer exercise. So the point is that, according to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, we're 100 seconds to midnight, which is closer than any time in history. That was before the Ukraine war broke out. So we've got the Ukraine war, we've got the specter of apt economic disaster in Europe. Winter approaches, we have climate change is not going away, and resource depletion, and all of these factors are acting to lower the threshold to nuclear war, make it more likely. Plus, we don't have the ABM treaty, we don't have the INF treaty, we do not have the Open Skies Treaty. So the three major arms control treaties that actually raised the threshold to nuclear war and made it less likely have all been abrogated by our country. The uh, tremendous propaganda that we're seeing, which is worse than anything that I've ever seen, has led us to the brink of nuclear annihilation. And yet the vast majority of the population doesn't seem to understand how great the risk is. John Steinbach is co-founder of the Hiroshima-Nagasaki Peace Committee of Washington, D.C. In national news, an auditor from Gwinnett County in Georgia, who was falsely accused of election fraud in the film 2000 Mules, is suing the movie's makers, Dinesh D'Souza and True the Vote, alleging they lied to advance a phony narrative at his expense. The lawsuit filed in federal court alleges the creators of the film knowingly used security footage of him legally dropping off ballots for himself and his family as proof of so-called hired mules depositing fraudulent ballots to steal the 2020 election. In related news, with the November 8th election fast approaching, Reverend Jesse L. Jackson Sr., Bishop Tavis Grant, National Executive Director for the Rainbow Push Coalition, and investigative journalist Greg Pallast have come out with their own film from the opposite perspective, showing alleged GOP voter suppression in Georgia. A Democratic incumbent is facing off with a football hero in a key Senate race, and Governor Brian Kemp is in a rematch with Democrat Stacey Abrams. Palace film is titled Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman. The film portrays Governor Kemp as the hitman who Palace says has been reportedly suppressing the black vote for a long time. 
Palace spoke with the news about his film and the bitter political battle in Georgia. Number one, Herschel Walker is a football hero. They don't care if if he beat up his wife, the important thing is that he beat the Crimson Tide <laughs> and, and from Alabama. So, you know, he'll be forever a hero in, in Georgia. Uh, the other, but what else is going on in Georgia is massive vote suppression. Uh, that's a polite term for shafting black people out of their vote, basically, also Asian Americans and young people. That's why we've been doing this investigation now in our ninth year of investigating what's going on in Georgia. We're going to have the November 2nd, the national release of our film out of Atlanta, but it will be online for free on November 2nd, Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman, which is about what Brian Kemp has been, who's the governor, he doesn't trust the voters. Brian Kemp is running against Stacey Abrams, a rematch of their 2018 so-called race. And as you know, we reported that over half a million voters were removed from the voter rolls, at least a third of a million wrongly. Now they're back. They've got a new gimmick in which you can have vigilantes. That is, anyone, any self-proclaimed vote fraud hunter can challenge an unlimited number of other voters. And we have... We have one woman, you'll see in the film Vigilante, one woman who challenged 32,000 voters, a GOP operative. There are 88 vigilantes. They've challenged a quarter million voters. Everyone is a Republican operative, and I'm not being partisan. It's just that Democrats are not doing this. Anyone can be a self-proclaimed vigilante and challenge the right of other voters to have their ballots counted, and it's not small. We had one woman who challenged 32,000 thousand voters one woman so many that she just handed in a thumb drive with names of voters who can't get their ballots counted unless they go into the offices and prove that they're citizens now who are they targeting we had one guy in muskogee one the gop chairman in southern georgia challenged four thousand voters including a career military officer major gamaliel turner who was assigned to california they challenge his vote. They're challenging all these black soldiers who are assigned to other military bases. And they have to prove that they're American citizens. These are guys. Yeah, that's what I want to ask. Is it they're innocent yeah. until proven guilty? Is that different? Is this civil or something? Excuse me? That's America. This is Georgia. We're talking Georgia, okay? You are guilty till you prove that you are not an illegal voter. And you have to do that. Like if you see the film Vigilante, we got this guy, dresses up like a vigilante. I kid you not, he portrays, he likes to, to reenact Doc Holliday, you know, the vigilante from the OK Corral. He carries a loaded six-gun, a cowboy hat, the whole thing. You may think he's a joke, except that he's knocking off thousands of voters, and he is one of the most important officials in the Republican Party. The major calls from the military base in California and says, where's my ballot? And they said, you've been challenged, you can't get a ballot. And they said, no problem. Just come into our office and we'll get it straightened out. Just prove your citizenship and that you're a legal Georgia voter. And he says, I'm 2,600 miles away at a military base. And you're telling me that all I have to do is come in to prove I'm a citizen? I'm a soldier. I'd prove I'm a citizen? And he says, you talk to fools like that. But they took away. He actually went through the process. He got lawyers and everything else. So he got his ballot counted. 4,000 people, almost overwhelmingly black and young people, 
denied the right to vote. I confronted the woman who challenged 32,000 people with the names of people, her neighbors, black neighbors, whose votes she stopped getting counted. I said, do you know these people? Have you called these people? No, I don't know them. I've never seen them. Do you know whether they do live at these addresses? No, I don't have time to do that. But you had time to challenge their vote. Anyway, she had a what? gun and she chased me out of her house, so you'll see that in the film. It's something that will be shocking and horrifying. There's some funny parts in it, because we go after that film, 2,000 Mules. I hope and so. And it's sick, but it's, uh, but it, it's kind of weirdly, you know, there's a lot of black humor in there that uh, you will appreciate. So that's November 2nd, all day, Eastern Time, if you want to participate in the discussion. That starts at 7 p.m. Eastern. Go to vigilantemovie.com. So you'll see me, Greg Palace, running around with my fedora chasing the bad guys and the vote rustlers, but also you meet some quite amazing voting rights activists. And you get to meet Brian Kemp running away from me. Investigative journalist Greg Palast. In more election news, Florida Democrats are bracing for a bad night and a Republican landslide on November 8th. Most worrisome for Democrats, national organizations and donors have all but abandoned their candidates, setting off fears that Florida is no longer viewed as competitive and the party's message on abortion rights and gun control isn't resonating. The GOP candidate for governor, Ron DeSantis, is eyeing a big win over Democrat Charlie Crist, catapulting DeSantis into the national spotlight and a possible presidential bid. And you're listening to the news. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez criticized President Biden for not including illegal immigrants in his pardon for those federally convicted of simple marijuana possession. Biden announced the pardon of all prior convictions for federal offenses of simple marijuana possession on October 6th. Biden says in a tweet after announcing the pardons that no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. The proclamation states this pardon doesn't apply to individuals who are not citizens, not lawfully present in the United States at the time of their offense. It also doesn't apply to 2,800 people in prisons for marijuana-related convictions. Outside the White House on Tuesday, protesters blasted the audio from a clip of Biden during a 2020 debate with Cory Booker, saying that everyone, anyone who has a record should be let out of jail and their records expunged. Keep your promises, Joe. Let our people go, the crowd chanted. Longtime drug policy advocate and former counsel to the House Judiciary Committee is Eric Sterling. He said although he voted for President Biden, the president could do a lot more. I have two Biden bumper stickers on my car. He's my president. I'm his fan. And I am heartbroken that he is not, when it comes to cannabis, doing what he could do. Now, here's the thing. What we're asking him to do is elementary justice that the whole nation understands. The whole nation understands that letting out cannabis prisoners who are doing what is illegal in 20 states or more is the just thing and it's the right thing. Biden knows what's right. And we're here in the essential way to remind him. So I want to thank Jason. I want to thank Jeremy. I want to thank everybody who's organized this important demonstration today. The first of the Biden administration to remind Joe Biden, do what's right. Among the organizers of the rally is Steve D'Angelo, a longtime cannabis activist who says Biden's pardons were a distraction from the real problem. It was an incredibly disappointing action on the part of President Biden. There was so much more that he could have done. The president has the executive authority to order the administrator, the DEA, to either 
deschedule cannabis to Schedule 5 or completely remove it from the Controlled Substances Act. The President has the power to release all federal cannabis prisoners tomorrow. The President has the power to change federal housing policy so that people are not evicted. The President did none of those things. Instead, the President gave us the smallest, littlest bit of change that applied to the people who have been hurt basically the least in this war and hasn't done anything for the people who are still suffering in a major way. How can we have a world where John Boehner is paid millions of dollars to sell tons of weed in many multiple states and we have federal prisoners still sitting in prison for doing the same exact thing at a much, much lower scale? So no, this is not a step in the right direction. This is a self-serving political fig leaf. Biden did the smallest amount that he could do. Personally, it's kind of like a stupid test for cannabis voters. Are the cannabis voters stupid enough to mistake this illusion for real change? Well, no, we're not. And smoke billowed in the air as a handful of people lit joints on the sidewalk and speakers, including hip-hop artists Redman and M1 of Dead Prez, rotated in front of a microphone. A board member of the marijuana prisoner advocacy group Freedom Grow is Kristen Floor. Her father died in prison, serving time on a marijuana bus in Montana. My dad died in prison 10 years ago, and I got really attached to the prisoners. And these people I've met along the way, in fact, they were on our prison outreach list before they got out of prison. And so now that they're out, they're, they've turned into activists just like us. So we, we unite and come together at important events like this. And there were folks who did like 30 years, 20 years, oh, yeah, life sentences. Yeah. Richard DeLisi's here. He served 32 years. Paul Fries served 25 years. And Craig Cecil served just about 20. And you said your dad died in prison. My dad co-owned five medical marijuana stores in Montana. And in 2011, the federal government raided 26 dispensaries. And my father went to prison, and so did my mother. But my father was very sick, and when he went to prison, they did not take care of his health. I had to take him off life support while he was chained to a bed. He died of five. Um, he had eight broken bones when he died. He had two major heart attacks because they weren't giving him his medicine. He had colon cancer, liver failure, and they just accused him of faking it, never gave him any medical attention whatsoever. So I am here to advocate for those people because I know they're not getting treated right in prison. Like a lot of our cannabis prisoners, they've watched murders and rapists come in and out in the decades that they've been there. So it's a concern to me. So are you mad at Biden for, I mean, farting no, 6,500 people? I'm mad at the whole federal government for incarcerating all these people in the first place. Um, they should have never been there. And I'm mad because they're taking so long to act on getting them out. If you just let them all out, everybody can go back to peace. The family members can start healing and life can move on, you know? My dad was in a federal prison. The president can call the governors and recommend, hey, let this guy go. It still falls in the hands of the governor but the president has a lot of influence on that. So, An attorney, Huma Rashid, who helps prisoners with applications for pardons and clemency, says pot convictions are rife with injustice. She also introduced Craig Sassal, whose life sentence for marijuana was commuted by then-President Trump in 2021. I wrote 27 petitions under President Trump. He granted eight. One of them is Craig Cecil, formerly in prison for life for marijuana that he never saw, never touched, never had conversations about. He went to prison for life because his truck repair business in Naperville, Illinois, repaired trucks that a Florida company used later to send marijuana all over the country. If that's not injustice, I mean, what are we fighting for? What was that like? It was horrible. Imagine sitting down on the bunk every night, 
knowing you couldn't leave until you're done. That's what I went through for just short of 19 years. How did you survive the, the knowing, I mean, I would feel so full of rage, it would eat me from inside, but you don't look like that's what happened. I couldn't let that happen to me. What I did do is I tried to reach out, I tried to make a difference, I tried to let people know we were there. Most people don't even know there is people serving life without parole for marijuana. Craig did something that is an example to all of us. While he was in there for life without hope of release, he helped all the other prisoners that he could with any medical grievances, with food issues, with religious discrimination, any prisoner that needed help in the prisons, he helped them. Not being a lawyer, but he secured so much success and so much release. And his, his petition was unfortunately denied by President Obama. But we took another bite at the apple, and we got him out. And now he's working. I'm working with him, but he is the driving fire and passion behind getting 267 other marijuana prisoners out. What is this list here? You have a list This of is the people, 267 federal marijuana prisoners that are in basically for marijuana only that we're trying to assist to get their petitions on his desk right in there. My petition was on that same desk January 20th, the last year, and got signed. Now we're trying to get 267 more signed on that very same desk. Yeah. So you're back with family. What was that like? That's so wonderful. Incredible. Um, I was back in a world I didn't even recognize. And I, I didn't even recognize the money had changed. <laughs> Here's Paul. You were great to clemency? Yes. What's your name? Paul Free. What happened with you? What was your story? I got arrested for possession of cannabis with intent to distribute. I got a life sentence. After 25 years, Obama gave me clemency and kicked me out. And here I am to help other guys get out. That's what we're here for. There's a lot left behind, many of them. I get kind of teary-eyed talking about it, thinking about them, but... And with undocumented immigrants exempted from Biden's limited pardons, one speaker at the D.C. rally asked if it was fair for her to be deported for less than a gram of pot. I am facing deportation for half a gram. Half. Half a gram. Nothing. And we have people that are losing their lives in jail. People that are grieving in life. People that are grieving because they are losing their time with their families. People that are grieving because they're losing their dreams or they lost their dreams. People that are grieving because they don't see their children grow up and they're not going to have that opportunity ever again. That is not something that you need to take lightly. I cannot vote, so I exhort you to vote. I'm going to be again, once again, President Biden, hear us. I was eight months pregnant when I was out in the streets asking, everybody to come out and vote Biden Harris. Don't don't make me regret that. Don't make me regret that. Thank you. And Sfida Ortiz Mills, whose daughter received a heart transplant and she self-treated with extracts of cannabis, is president of the United Empowerment Party, known formally as the National Cannabis Party. She described how she uh, decided to move ahead with her ideas to uh, help her daughter uh, fight rejection using cannabis and how marijuana and cannabis extracts played an important role in her daughter's survival. My daughter ended up having to have a heart transplant at five months old. I started to do a lot of research 
on how cannabinoids could impact the body when you have have an organ transplant. And there have been several studies at universities that shows how cannabis helps to reduce the likelihood of organ rejection and also helps the body to accept the organ better. So after doing that research, I took it upon myself to microdose my daughter, figure out what works for her, and she uses CBD and CBG. My daughter has been four years transplanted with zero rejection. She's been developmentally doing amazing, and her doctors are always asking, well, whatever it is you're doing, it's working. So as a caregiver and a cannabis mom, I can't express how important it is for cannabis to be accessible to all. There's not enough access for pediatric patients. Those are the patients that matter as well, and there needs to be medical research done, there needs to be programs that are created so that people can be able to medicate their children responsibly and properly. If I can microdose my daughter with medication that is only meant for adults, there are children that are receiving medication that was only meant for adults who have heart problems that they had to formulate and compound for a baby. So if you can microdose that type of medicine only meant for adults, for children, then you can also microdose cannabis for children as well. So collectively, we need to raise our voices, hold these elected officials accountable. The reason why we created the United Empowerment Party and registered as a political party, because there has to be someone that bridges that divide. There has to be someone that is speaking for both sides, because it's not about being Democrat or Republican. People need to vote for people who are truly representing you and that people that really stand for you. You can't vote by party affiliation. You have to vote for candidates that are actually out there in the community doing the work and those who really do support cannabis, not just saying they do, just so that they can get our votes. That's so right. stop giving them our votes if they're not going to do what they say they're going to do and hold their promise, which is why we're here today to say, Mr. Joe Biden, we need you to keep your promise. Safita Ortiz Mills is the founder of the United Empowerment Party, formerly known as the National Cannabis Party. The protesters rallied at the Democratic National Committee headquarters where they pressed the Democrats to widen the pot pardons. All right, Ishmael Lira. Free Ishmael Lira. Yeah. Yeah. Reginald Patterson, free, free Reginald Patterson. Free Edwin Rubis. Free Donald Fugit. Free Kerry Collier. Free Daryl McDougal. Free Kevin Hardin. Free Renee Izaguira. Free Harold Klump. Free them all. Free Gabriel Gomez. Free Frank Rogers. Free Juan G Gabriel Cisneros. Free them all. Free them all, y'all. Free them all. Arkansas, Maryland, Missouri, and the Dakotas are all voting on legalization in November, and the federal government is reviewing the scheduling of cannabis as equivalent to deadly drugs like heroin and fentanyl. And that's some of the news for Friday morning, October 28, 2022. The news is written and anchored by this reporter. It's available at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.